that Christ and him crucified is central to the proclamation uh, of the gospel. For example, let me just give a cursory glance at some. In Acts 2 and 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. In uh, chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, You denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and kill the Prince of Peace whom God raised up. And then in Acts chapter 10, verse 39, we have this same theme emphasized again. We are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and Jerusalem whom they killed by the hanging on a tree. And then First um, Corinthians, or rather, uh, yes, First Corinthians chapter 1 and uh, verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness. Or uh, verse 23 of First uh, Corinthians 1. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block to the Greeks, foolishness. So over and over and over, uh, you know, when men preached, you know, this is what they preached. Now why did they do that? They preached it because it's important. They preached it because we cannot be saved, you know, without understanding about Christ and Him crucified. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verse 1, Paul said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. Now watch it. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what Paul said he was determined to know among them. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith, watch it, it's going to slip up on you, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but where? In the power of God. Let me tell you something. If we spend more time preaching on Christ and Him crucified, this manifestation of God's grace, do you know what will happen? We'll have more powerful pulpits. Do you know what will happen? We'll have more powerful results in the pews. Do you know what will happen? We'll have more faithful husbands. We'll have more faithful wives. We'll have uh, young people who are more pure uh, than they are. The best advice that we can give it, uh, to anybody is to remain connected to the cross. It's got to be done. Amen? And so this is profoundly important. Now I've got a few points <clears throat> that I think Uh, show the significance of Christ and Him crucified. Number one, Christ and Him crucified shows the enormity of sin. This is the reason we need grace. The enormity of sin. One might think of any number of scenes that, that show the enormity of sin, but I can't see any greater scene than the scene of the cross that shows the enormity of sin. When you stand beneath the cross and you see, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, then you ought to be impressed with the enormity of sin. Why is that? Because He was nailed to the cross for whom? For us. Don't we sing a song? Jesus paid what? Paid it all. Jesus paid the price for us. Turn, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah 53, I want to point out some words that need to be emblazoned in our memory. 
<clears throat> in this short section of scripture I want to read to you, in my translation, Isaiah uses the word our five times, he uses the word we four times, and he uses us one time. Now listen to it. Are you listening? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you get the idea here in this short section of Scripture that there's something going on between the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and us? You do, don't you? You see, Jesus died for us. He was bruised for our iniquities. In 1 Peter 2 and 24, he bore our sins on his cross. In Hebrews 1 3, he purged our sins. In Revelation 1 and 5, <clears throat> to him who who loved us and washed us from our sin in His blood. And I just, I am, uh, I'm amazed at the emphasis that the Scripture gives on the relationship between the cross and us. <clears throat> There's been some dispute as to who was really responsible for the death of Jesus. You know, I've heard people say, well, the Romans are the ones you know, who nailed Jesus to the cross. Well, no, the Jews were responsible. Well, I think Peter tells it pretty uh, plainly when he says in Acts 2, um, addressing Israel, he says, 22, you men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. You, who's he talking to? He's talking to the, to the Jews. You have taken in my wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now, the, and, and if you read the Gospel of John, you know that it was Caiaphas you know, who had the greater sin because it was Caiaphas you know, who delivered Jesus up. But the truth of the matter is, though the Jews <clears throat> crucified Jesus through the Romans, who's responsible for the death of Jesus? All of us are responsible for the death of Jesus. Every person is responsible because he died for us. He died for our uh, sins. Uh, Jesus, since Jesus died for our sins, all of us, you know, took part in his death. And so Romans 3 and 10 says, there's none righteous, no, not one. 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory uh, of God. <clears throat> now this message uh, that we preach is, um, is a message that cannot be preached without offending, you know, the hearer. Why is that? You know, you know for the Jews, the cross was what? It was a stumbling block. Now why is that? Here's, here's the reason. Because we cannot stand at the foot of the cross, we cannot stand at the foot of the cross without seeing ourselves as miserable sinners. That's the truth of it. See, when you stand at the foot of the cross and you look at the cross and you see that it's Jesus Christ on the cross who did no sin. You remember in John 8, he said, who convicts me of sin? 
he, he had no sin. You know, the pure, spotless, you know, Lamb of God. And you stand at the foot of that cross and you see yourself as a miserable sinner. And so that becomes a stumbling block. You see what that does? That strikes at our pride. Why? Because we don't want to see ourselves that way, do we? See, we don't want to look at ourselves that way, so it strikes at our pride. And it forces us to look to you know, someone else to give significance to our lives. This offends every one of us. The very nature of it is a disturbing you know, concept. So preaching Christ and Him crucified, I think, emphasizes the enormity of our sin and the great need that we have for God's grace. Also, and, and closely related, Christ crucified, Christ and the cross, shows our helplessness. It shows our helplessness. The cross says basically this, you are a failure. It says you are a failure. And a failure to understand this, I think, has caused some people to reject Christ as their righteousness. Do you remember the passage in Romans 10 and 3? Speaking of the Jews, it says, They being ignorant, watch this now, they being ignorant of God's righteousness. Now, there he's not talking about righteousness, um, Steve, as like an attribute of God, I don't think. He's talking about righteousness, I think, like in Romans 1.17, more of an activity. They being ignorant of God's righteousness, that is, God's way to make people right, you see. They being ignorant of God's plan to make people right, have done what? According to Romans 10.3. They've gone about to establish their own plan of righteousness. And have not submitted themselves to God's plan. Now do you know anybody like that? Oh, I'm not going to have anything to do with that. You know, i got my own thing you know, going over here. Wasn't there an old country song? Me and Jesus got a good thing going. <laughs> you see? That's not submitting to the righteousness of God. That's coming up with your own plan. Do you know anybody like... I had an uncle. I, I never could do anything with him. Uh, tried to get him to, you know, to go to church and so forth. And he told me one time that the woods was his church. And the deer that he was slaying, I don't know if that was his church members or what. But, um, and then turkeys became his church. And, and um, he, he said, he said, you know, I just feel closer to God, you know, in the woods. And I said, well, I think it's a good thing to feel close to God in the woods. But there's this other thing called the church of Jesus Christ for which the Lord Jesus died. Amen. And this body of people uh, have something in common and they come together, you know, to eat the Lord's Supper and to participate in the other acts of worship. Well, he didn't want to have anything to do with that. He had his own plan, you see. He had his own plan of righteousness. And so what the cross does is it shows us, listen, your plan does not work. If you're going to be saved, you've got to be saved by the manifestation of God's grace, which is demonstrated in the cross. And so only by humbling ourselves, only by stripping ourselves of our pride, only by recognizing that we ourselves are sinners, only by recognizing that after we've done all that we should count ourselves unprofitable servants, you know, Luke 17 and 10, only, if, only by coming to that total realization 
you know, can we ever be saved? Let me tell you something. A proud man can't be saved. Is that right? He can't. A proud man. Now, I'm not talking about the kind of pride that causes you to brush your teeth, you know, or comb your hair if you got any hair, okay? I'm not talking about that kind of pride. That's self-respect. I'm talking about pride in the sense of arrogance and haughtiness, you know, that which goes before destruction, that, that sense of, of self that says, I don't need anybody, you know, I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps and so forth. A proud man cannot be saved. Unless, what? He strips himself of his pride. There'll be a lot of people lose their souls because they're smarter than God. They're smarter than the good book. They're smarter than the plan, you know, that God's laid out for them, you see. They got it worked out, you see. A lot of people lose their souls because they're not willing to humbly submit, you know, to that which is revealed in Scripture, which is plain as a nose on your face. It's simple. It is something that can be adhered to. But unfortunately, some remind me of Naaman of old. Well, I mean, if the prophet had come back and said, do this and do that and so forth, you know, that would have made a whole lot of sense to me. I would have done that. But you see, he had a hard problem, did he not? Getting rid of his pride and getting off his stinking horse and submitting to what the prophet said to do, which was to dip in the river. And you remember, but for the intercession of a servant, he would have died a leper. You remember the servant said, Master, if he would have required of you some great thing, you would have done it. What's that saying? He's saying if, that, if he would have required of you some big complicated thing, you would have submitted to that. So you would have said, oh yeah, wow, that's really complicated. And I'm such a smart guy. You know, I can figure all that out, see. And, uh, you know, that mentality causes a lot of people to be lost. You know, in the early church, there were the Gnostics. And you know who the Gnostics were? Uh, that word comes from a word which means to know. They were the guys who kind of butt their coat and, and they said, uh, yeah, we, we understand it. Oh, it's a big mystery. You know, we got it together. And poor Jimmy Joe over there, bless his heart, he's so ignorant he can't even get it. And Lucille over here, you know, she can't get it either. Poor thing. And Charles Ray over there, he's just as dumb as Jimmy Joe. He can't figure it out either. But we, we got it. See, we know. We're on the inside. And we're on the inside track. Well, they didn't know nearly as much as they thought they knew. Let me tell you the person who's in the know. The person who's in the know is the person who recognizes the plain, simple teaching of Scripture that to be saved, we must submit ourselves to God's plan by which to make us right. And guess what? Everybody can understand that plan. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Demonstrate that faith. We'll talk more about that. It's a certain kind of faith. It's a faith that takes God at His Word. It's not merely a, well, I believe, okay, I'm done. It's a faith that demonstrates uh, obedience unto God. Christ crucified 
not only shows the enormity of sin, not only does it show our helplessness, but it also shows God's power to forgive. I'm going to talk more about power in our third lesson when we talk about the power of the gospel. But let me just mention it briefly here. When Paul preached Christ and him crucified, he was preaching God's power. Listen to him again in the verse I quoted earlier. What was it about 1 Corinthians 2, maybe 4? My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of what? Man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You know, brethren, it's disturbing to me when a preacher leaves a church and then the church falls apart. Barry, where are you? There you are. That bothers me. And I'll tell you why that bothers me. Because I cannot help but wonder if the preaching and the teaching that took place, you know, under the former administration, as it were, was preaching and teaching that put the confidence of the people where? In the man instead of in the plan. And by man, I don't mean the man, Jesus Christ. I mean the preacher. The confidence has got to be in God's power to save, Brother Don. That's where the power is. It's in that message. It ought to be that if a preacher left you know, church A and went to congregation B, it didn't skip a beat. Because the power that had been preached there was the power of God. There was never any emphasis on, on the preacher himself. He never preached or taught in such a way as to have people look to him, but rather to look to the cross. Those churches don't have any problems. But you see, we've got to spend some time. Elders have to spend some time. Preachers have got to spend some time. Teachers have got to spend some time to be sure that people's confidence is in the right place. That confidence has got to be in the power of the cross. Does that make sense? That would be appropriate response, except it was rather weak, I thought. But I appreciate it, Roy. Okay, was that you, Brother Roy? All right. All right. Okay, I'm just messing with you, uh, but just a little bit. All right. The gospel is what's God's power to save. And uh, as I said, we'll say more about that later on. <clears throat> Given God's perfect holiness, God could not overlook our sin. He simply cannot, cannot overlook our sin. Um, God's perfect in holiness. Isn't that right? He's infinite in all of his attributes. One of his attributes is holiness. You know, Peter said, be holy. Why? Quoting Leviticus. Why? Because I'm holy. So you can't be in the presence of God. That's the reason that we have to be redeemed if we're going to be able to be in a relationship with God. Why? Because God's perfect in holiness. So we've got to be counted holy. Right? We've got to be counted holy ourselves. We have to be made holy. We can't be in the presence of God you know, without being counted holy. The very fact that we can be in God's presence is because we have been made holy. So God cannot overlook our sin. He can't say, as a doting grandfather might say, oh, just forget it. You know how we do with some of these grandkids. Oh, yeah, don't worry about it. 
Linda and I kind of like that. You know, we, we spoil them, send them home, you know. <laughs> Let mom and daddy deal with them. God can't deal with, with people that way. God can't say, oh, I'm just going to overlook that. Can't do that. And so he's, he's always had a plan, you know, to deal with, uh, with sin. You know, his perfect justice would um, uh, demand punishment. Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul that sins, that soul will what? Die. But God doesn't want anybody to die. He wants everybody to be saved, Bill. He doesn't want anybody to die. On the Day of Atonement, this is recorded in Leviticus 16. I'll try to summarize it quickly. The high priest entered the most holy place and made atonement for himself and his family by offering the blood of a young bull. And then two uh, goats were taken to the door of the tabernacle and one was killed as a sin offering. And on the other, the priest symbolically placed the sins of the people. And then that goat was you know, sent out into the wilderness. And that goat was called what? The scapegoat. Okay? Now, for hundreds of years, the Israelites offered animals as sacrifice for their sins. But Hebrews says in Hebrews 10 and 4, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sin. Uh, the only thing that happened, as far as they were concerned, was a, a remembrance was made. You remember that? Sometimes you've heard people say their sins were rolled forward. You've heard it maybe said that way, but Hebrews 10 and 3 says a remembrance was made. Let me try to illustrate it. <clears throat> you ever had a bank note? Okay. Um, most of us have. So you got this bank note, <clears throat> and the note comes due, but you can't make payment for it. So what do you do? You go to the bank, can't make payment for it, and so hopefully they will what? Do the R word. They will renew the note, right? And see, that just says to you, wow, there it is, that $10,000 I still owe, you know, there it is, it's still staring me in the face, you know, and they've renewed it, and I'm still looking at it. And then the next year you go up there, I can't make payment, or we'll renew the note. See, there it is, it's still staring at me, it's making me remember it again, you see. That's kind of what happened with the Jews, you know, in their sin, it was just remembered. But now Jesus comes, and what? He pays it all, you see. Suppose you go up there next year to renew that note, and the banker says, <clears throat> somebody paid the note. Really? That's kind of what's going on with us, if that illustration you know, helps us anyway uh, at all. Jesus comes up and he pays the note. It's gone. It's wiped off. It's off the books. He paid it all. And that's because of his shed blood. Almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood is there no remission. Hebrews chapter 9 and in verse 22. And so here our Lord Jesus comes on the scene, and he's the lamb without spot, without blemish. Peter says it well in 1 Peter 1, 18, 19, For as much as you know you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, <clears throat> But by the what? Precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and <clears throat> without spot. So, when we're forgiven, our sins are removed. Psalm 103 verse 12. And how far are they removed? As far as the east is from what? 
the west. That's pretty far, isn't it? Acts 3.19, they are blotted out. And Hebrews 8.12, they are forgotten. Let me tell you something. Are you listening to me? God blots out our sins. They're forgotten. He'll do better than any brother or sister in Christ. You know, a brother will say, well, I'll forgive him, but I'll tell you one thing, I ain't going to forget it. That's the way they do it. God blots it out of his memory. Gone. Disappeared. I don't know, I don't know what you're talking about. That's gone. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could do that with one another? It'd be great. If we could, we try. There are some things that just, uh, I think we should just admit, there are some things that are just impossible to forget, but we certainly have got to do as much as possible to count them forgotten. And then <clears throat> Christ and Him crucified shows the inexhaustible love of God. And I'm going to flesh this out a little bit more in another, in another lesson. <clears throat> but uh, there are several verses. You know, the verse that's, uh, I suppose the first verse that any of us learn, Martin Luther called it the golden text of the Bible. What is it? John what? 316. You know, you see it at ball games. You see it on bumper stickers. You see it on hats. People hold up signs and so forth. God so loved the world. But I don't want you to think of it that way. I want you to think of it with your name there. God so loved John that he gave his only begotten son. God so loved Roy he gave his only begotten son. God so loved Bill that he gave his only begotten son. God so loved Teresa that he gave his only begotten son. Or Tammy or Emily. You fill in a blank. Put your name there. God loved you. He loved me individually so much that he gave his son. What son? His only son. What kind of son is that? His unique son. The King James says only begotten. The word means unique. That's the way Brother Hugo McCord translated it in his Bible. Unique. It's special. One of a kind. I'm a son of God, but I'm an adopted son of God. Now I have all the rights and privileges you know, that God has promised to me, but Jesus Christ is the unique Son of God, like Isaac of old. The same word is used to describe Isaac in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. He was Abraham's unique son. Now Abraham had other sons, but they were not unique. How was Isaac unique? Son of promise. The one through who through whose seed all nations of the earth would be blessed. There's a song that we sing sometime. The title of it is The Love of God. And um, one of the stanzas has these words, and I love these words. Are you ready? Could we... Now, now listen to me. I know we got activity or something going on, but we got a few more minutes. So y'all listen. Are you listening? Okay, good. Could... I mean, I'm old. Y'all y'all have... I need you to. I need you to. Feel, I need to feel you a little bit. You know, show me some love. Okay. All right. Here's here you go. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made? Okay. Now what we got? I've been over this ocean countless times, Steve. You know what I'm talking about. I was long journeys. You know, long flights. How much water we got? We got a bunch of water, right? What if all of it were ink? Then you go out to big sky country. How much sky we got? Got a lot of sky. So suppose all the water in the world was ink and all the sky was what? 
parchment. That's what it says. That's paper. And were every stalk on earth a quill. That's a pen. How much sage grass you got in your field? Suppose every one of those little little pieces that made up that sage grass, John, you know, was a pen. Alright? And if every man on the earth were, were a scribe by trade, so what we got? We got a lot of ink, we got a lot of paper, we got a lot of pens, and we got a lot of writers. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could a scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The cross shows the love of God. Do you want to know if God loves you or not? All you got to do is look at the cross. Does God love you? Just look at the cross. Just put it in your mind. I'm not sure God loves me. Don't think like that. Look at that cross. If you look at the cross, God loves you. He loves me. This, the, the cross is, is nothing but an expression of God's love, His mercy, His grace. That's what the cross is. And we express our love to God by reciprocating he loved us that He gave us His Son. And what do we do? We love Him because He first, what? Loved us. And then that love also is extended to our brothers and sisters you know, in Christ. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this day. Father, we're so thankful that in Thy grace You sent Jesus to this earth to die for our sins. For without Him, Father, we would have no hope. And Father, we are so thankful that in Thy good providence that someone taught us the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we had a, enough good sense to respond to it and to obey it. And Father, we're so grateful for that. And we're mindful of those who have not yet made that decision. And we pray that, that in thy goodness and thy mercy that you will give them time and opportunity to develop a proper relationship with thee. Father, go with us throughout the rest of this day. We're so thankful for this good congregation and the work that's done here. And we pray a blessing upon their efforts today and, and uh, throughout time. Forgive our transgressions. In Jesus' name, we humbly beg it. Amen.